Boot up, ready to go? All right. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me one more time in Luke chapter 19. <clears throat> Luke chapter 19. I do have Randy Blair standing by for this evening, just in case the uh, voice doesn't cooperate. Luke chapter 19. And I don't think it's allergies either. I think I'm just sick. So, anyway, we'll, we'll figure it out. The story of Zacchaeus in verses 1 through 10. We got through most of it last week and... We will uh, get through the rest of it today, I expect, and then maybe get our first glimpse uh, looking ahead to the uh, verses 11 and following, because we really don't have a change of scenery when we get to the parable of the minus, the minus, however you want to pronounce that. Um, he's going to teach them a parable in verses 11 and following that really uh, encompasses the same time frame as this episode and the previous episode. We saw that last week under main point one, that the events of this episode and the next overlap with the previous episodes. So what we saw in episodes 38, 39, and 40, they all coincide there in and around Jericho. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that distractions are set aside, that we are humble under the authority of God's word, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have to assemble together. Father, it is, a, it is a grace gift. We don't deserve this. And yet, by your grace, you've allowed us to be here. We thank you, Father, for brothers and sisters in Christ that are serious about their study, that have a reverence for your word, a respect for your glory. And Father, we pray that our assembly today would be pleasing in your sight, that it would be a blessing for all who are here. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty, as again, as we saw last week, the events of this episode and the next overlap with the previous episode, and that was the uh, deal with blind Bartimaeus and his blind begging buddy. And now we're dealing with the interview with Zacchaeus, and then we have the parable of the Minus, or the Minus, coming up here in episode number 40. Uh, this is the story of Zacchaeus, Strong's number 2195, the Name only appears three times in the Bible. All three times are right here in this paragraph. And this is the only episode, the only story that ever features uh, Zacchaeus. Um, there is a bit of a debate on his name, but if it in fact does come from the Hebrew, then Zakai we understand as a purity term, and we can think of Zacchaeus as pure. There is a later church tradition that makes him the first bishop of Caesarea. I don't hold much stock in that tradition. I think there was a lot of romantic... Uh, idealism and some desire to kind of create some stories based upon biblical characters, and uh, and they're not all that reliable. Some of the details about him, you've heard of the rich young ruler. We're calling him the rich, short, ruling tax collector. Uh, he was rich, which is in itself not necessarily noteworthy, other than the fact that we, the Gospel of Luke has presented several stories 
uh, related to how it's hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And so you have uh, the rich man and, and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. Uh, often the rich man is called Dives because of the Vulgate, uh, the Latin tradition as related. The Bible doesn't really tell us his name, but we call him Dives. <clears throat> but in contrast with the rich man of Luke 16 and the rich young ruler of Luke 18, uh, we've had several episodes in the Gospel of Luke where we're told that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for an, a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, this is a story that gives the proves the exception. And, uh, uh, of course, the exception typically proves the rule as well, and we understand that. But here's a rich man who uh, understands doctrinal issues and who is positive for the king even though the king is headed for his crucifixion, the tax collector is ready for the kingdom. Uh, as far as his height is concerned, we did a little bit of work there that he was small in stature and discussed the nature of stature. We'll go back over that. <clears throat> the, the fact that uh, we have talones lots of times in the New Testament related to tax collectors. Usually tax collectors and sinners are lumped together. Uh, here, though, we have the ark prefix attached in front of tax collector. He is the architalones, the arch, the ruling tax collector. And this uh, probably gives us uh, a bit more, uh, well, if you, if you do a study on the Roman procedures for their tax collecting and the different things, Matthew was more of a retail uh, tax collector, and this guy would be more of a wholesale. He would have had several Matthews working under him in, uh, in different capacities. And at point three, we, we actually explored this somewhat. Zacchaeus desired to see who Jesus was. And I don't believe this is a passage that describes <coughs> Zacchaeus receiving eternal life. And I want to be careful that we understand that. I, I think it's assumed that way because Jesus uses soteria in verse 9. When Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Because he too is a son of Abraham. And um, we, we want to be careful to not assign this as the event whereby Zacchaeus passes from death into life. Whereby, you know, yesterday Zacchaeus was on the road to hell. Uh, today Zacchaeus climbs a tree and, and, and receives eternal life. No, um, he is a son of Abraham. He has been for some time. And by virtue of him being a son of Abraham prior to this event, then um, we have the details of what happens here. I think the question or the statement he uh, desired to see who Jesus was is similar to Paul's question in Acts chapter 9, Who are you, Lord? Uh, recognizing the name of Jesus. Recognizing that the anticipated coming Messiah is the one in whom Zacchaeus has already placed his faith. He's had his faith in the coming Messiah for quite some time. And... Uh, the, uh, and he's heard the name of Jesus, but he's never come face to face with him. And so he's wanted to actually see this and, uh, and do that. Now, there was one um, passage I was going to highlight here. After Peter gets or after Paul gets saved, we discussed this last week in Acts chapter nine and how powerful it was. <clears throat> and he asked this question, who are you, Lord? Then. Um, I pointed out to you my belief. I don't believe this is when Paul received eternal life. I believe this was when Paul uh, was ushered into the church when he crossed over from being an Old Testament believer to a New Testament believer. <clears throat> but the receiving of the Holy Spirit here and the, and the uh, 
subsequent uh, teaching. I want you to notice um, there was a... uh, I'm not going to find it. He keeps arguing that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 22 is the verse I'm thinking of, 922. Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this, that is this man, this Jesus, is the Christ. See, And this was a very unique ministry at the point of... Um, the, the early stages of the church immediately following Pentecost when you have when you still have living Old Testament believers Old Testament believers who need to be updated uh, who need to recognize that they got saved before uh, the cross they got saved looking forward to a coming Messiah and uh, now that the cross is complete that the work of redemption is is effective now they need to identify that this Jesus is the Christ that they have been waiting for and so only this generation can experience this. Only this generation that we're dealing with in the early chapters of Acts can deal with Old Testament believers who need to accept the Messiahship of Christ to cross into the church. And so we, we identify that this is, in fact, the focus of Paul's ministry in Acts 9. It becomes his focus of ministry in the subsequent chapters. And I think that's very close to what we have related here in Luke 19 as it pertains to Zacchaeus. So he uh, was trying to see who Jesus was, was unable to because of the crowd, for he was small in stature and climbs the tree. Now, point four, Jesus called Zacchaeus by name in a testimony of his prophetic office. And I tell you, I, I can't stress this enough. You've got to um, understand what life was like for an Old Testament prophet. What was, uh, how did he just walk along, look up, and he never laid eyes on him before not earthly eyes in terms of his humanity, but uh, Jesus prophetically knew that this was Zacchaeus. He looks up on the tree and and says, uh, you know, it's almost like uh, in uh, Support Your Local Sheriff when James Garner looks up in the tree and there's, you know, what's her name, the mayor's daughter. She's up there in her underwear and uh, dripping wet, um, hiding from from, uh, the sheriff. Well, here's Jesus walking along the road and he looks up and there's Zacchaeus up there in the tree. And so he says, Zacchaeus, he calls him by name, see. And, uh, you know, we don't assume that Zacchaeus was wearing a name tag. (laughs) You know, prophetically he knew not only his name, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today. I must stay at your house. Why did he have to stay in his house? Why was this mandatory? What was what were his instructions? How did Jesus function on a daily basis? You know, we assume, you know, he's headed towards Bethany and then he's headed towards Jerusalem and he's going to be at Bethany on the Sabbath before uh, Palm Monday here. And then he's going to enter into Jerusalem on Palm Monday and and uh, and all of these things. Why is it described as a have to the language of have to today? I must stay at your house. See, and so when you go back to, uh, you compare this to the early ministry in John 1, and then I think the best passage is 1 Samuel 9, where you start to see how it was that prophets would receive, uh, you know, you could think of them as daily briefings, as it were. Like, uh, 
in uh, all my years of law enforcement experience or military and whatnot, you would start your shift and you'd start with a briefing and you'd start with an update and here's here's what's expected, here's what's on tap for today, here's what we have to get accomplished, uh, here's what uh, the off-going shift is, is passing on to us, uh, here's some of the latest uh, intelligence briefings and things to be looking out for and things of that nature. You know, the, the previous shift found, uh, found uh, uh, you know, half of a tattoo kit uh, where's the other half? You know, well, we got to go hunt it down. We got to go find it, and uh, things of that nature. And so, when you read in First Samuel nine, you understand that Samuel is receiving his briefings here from the Lord. You know, about this time tomorrow, a young man is going to come. He's looking for his father's donkeys, and and uh, you're going to meet him, and you're going to anoint him as the the king of Israel. And so, we see the glimpses of this here now with Jesus. Today, I must stay at your house. He has to in obedience with the Father. There's going to be ministry in that house, salvation coming to this house, uh, not in the terms of eternal life, but in the terms of anticipating the kingdom, humbling themselves for the kingdom, repenting and preparing and humbly for the kingdom, and uh, the doing away of sin. We call this phase two salvation, the uh, word of God that, uh, re- that we receive implanted, which is able to save our souls. And uh, we'll, we'll spell that out here in just a moment. So, um, Zacchaeus responds. He hurriedly, uh, he hurried, you know, and came down and received him gladly. So, we see the immediate faith response on the part of Zacchaeus, obeying his instructions, obeying uh, what it is the Lord says must happen here. Uh, it doesn't say that he believed in Christ, but it does say that he was obedient to the, uh, to the instructions. Now, when they saw it, who's they in verse 7? When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying he has gone to be a get, the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, we don't have the subject of the verb they here, but under point five, they grumbled over Jesus going to a sinner's house. And I think it's pretty much undeniable that it's the uh, the crowd here, the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were constantly harping on Christ. Uh, in the context, we understand that there were crowds who tried to shut uh, the mouth of blind Bartimaeus and get him to stop hollering. Uh, there were other crowds that, uh, um, you know, everybody has an opinion on what Jesus needs to do, on where Jesus needs to go and who needs to go with him and what needs to be said and who needs to shut up and all these things. And it's fascinating how prideful people are always worked up over how other people need to run their lives. Um, seems to be a characteristic uh, of the ancient world and the medieval world and the modern world. And uh, probably just simply the nature of fallen humanity. But um, here they are grumbling. And this is pretty common. You'll notice it's a repeated theme throughout the Gospel of Luke and really all the, the Gospel records. But just uh, to stir up your mind by way of remembrance, back in Luke 5, verses 30 through 32... This was the uh, situation. And here's uh, another tax collector. This is Levi, also known as Matthew. And uh, Levi gives a big reception for him at his house. There was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? 
And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, if you don't uh, associate with such folks, then you'll never have an opportunity to evangelize, never have an opportunity to testify, uh, never have an outreach. You can just kind of uh, clump together in your little monasteries or your little cliques or your little circles of self-righteous Pharisees and, and try to out-Pharisee one another, but you'll never uh, proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. And so we see it described there. As far as the Pharisees and the Sadducees were concerned, they, they hated each other and they were rivals with each other, but one thing they agreed on, well, a couple things they agreed on, they hated Christ, but another thing they agreed on is that tax collectors and sinners were like lepers, outcasts, unclean, want nothing to do with them. Don't give them the time of day. In fact, proximity to them could defile you. All right. Tax collectors and sinners. I commented last week how the tax collectors were viewed as uh, traitors, uh, race traitors, uh, that they were agents of Rome, agents of the foreign occupying powers, and... Uh, so often they were targets for assassination or they were mistreated and, and whatnot. Uh, and sinners, keep in mind, sinners um, is used. How is the term sinners used in the gospel record as it relates to the, uh, normally it's by the Pharisees or the self-righteous that will use the term. Um, you know, I mean, raise your hand if you're not a sinner, right? I mean, we're all sinners. Everybody's a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what is this group of people here that are specifically called sinners? You know, it's like when it talks about the Jews. Well, they're all Jews. Jesus is a Jew. His disciples are Jews. The Pharisees are Jews. Why does it talk about the fear of the Jews? Who are the Jews in the context, particularly the uh, Eudaioi there in the Gospel of John? Well, when we have sinners, uh, understanding, of course, everybody's a sinner, but it's a special term that's used in the Gospel record, and it was on the part of the uh, uh, the devout, the observant Jews, that is, those that followed uh, Mosaic law, those that followed uh, liturgical, um, ceremonially uh, clean versus unclean, those that observed the feasts, those that uh, looked to the, the, the scribes for their direction, those that studied the law. Those, in other words, we can just simply call them observant Jews. If we were going to use today's terminology, in Israel today, the Jews are classified that live there. The Israelis that live in modern Israel today are classified either as observant or secular, non-observant Jews. So, you know, they, maybe they're racially Jewish. Uh, they live, they're Israeli citizens, but they don't particularly attend synagogue anywhere. They don't really pay attention to the seasons or to the, to the uh, I mean, we're in the high holy days, or uh, we were last week anyway. And, um, and, and so the secular, non-observant Jews... Uh, you know, basically we're reckoned as sinners because they're not even making an effort. <laughs> they're not even trying. You know, at least the observant Jews are trying to maintain clean versus unclean ceremonial status and observance and things of that nature. So, um, yes, if you're an observant Jew, if you are basing your, your uh, sanctification on how well you obey the, uh, the Pharisee guidelines, then, uh, then the others who don't even make an effort at it, then they're just... You know, a bunch of sinners as far as that goes. All right, so that's the, that's the term there. Over in chapter 7, we have it in verses 34 and 35. This was really a contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus. John was a teetotaler, never touched a drop of alcohol his entire life. He was a, under a Nazarite vow from birth. 
And uh, um, Christ was on the contrast. Christ did partake in alcoholic beverages. He did so not to drunkenness. He did so in moderation. Uh, but see, this became the contrast. See, this, uh, John the Baptist came eating no bread, drinking no wine. You say he has a demon, but the Son of Man comes eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. In other words, these guys aren't going to be happy no matter what. You know, you want to be the teetotaler? Uh, then they're going to say, well, it's phony. You're just self-righteous. You want to have a relaxed grace approach to, uh, to eating and drinking and, and having outreach? Well, then they, they're not happy with that either. They say, well, you're lascivious. You're, uh, you're, uh, you're compromising. You're not holy enough. Nothing is going to make these guys happy. And uh, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. And so I know I understand there are puritanical, baptistic type, modern day believers who aren't, for whatever reason, cultural or whatnot. They don't like the idea that Jesus drank uh, any kind of alcohol to moderation or whatnot. But uh, if if you're going to insist on that view, then you understand that these verses um, these verses prove you wrong. It's uh, it's undeniable here in the contrast of John the Baptist with Jesus. Uh, and, and, and true, I mean, you can't also say the Pharisees uh, would not have accused him of being a drunkard if he was you know, 100% abstaining like John the Baptist was. They, they were arrogant and boastful, but they weren't blithering idiots. So the calling him a glutton and a drunkard uh, is in itself testimony to his alcoholic consumption. All right. Yet uh, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's the verse I'm headed to there. A friend, someone who fellowships, someone who has a uh, uh, social life with these kind of individuals. Uh, over to chapter 15 and verse 2. Be our final example on this. Luke 15 and verse 2. <clears throat> I'll never forget the time I went to a picnic. Then at Zilker Park, the sheriff's department had a picnic down there. And so we went down there, we threw a frisbee and played catch with a football and ate some whatever. And there was a cooler of beer there and, and there was <coughs> shock on the part of some of my co-workers because I consumed a, a beer on that one picnic occasion, you know. And oh my goodness. And they, they said, we didn't know you could drink beer. You know, we thought you were a pastor. <laughs> and... It was kind of interesting, too, because they didn't really have much exposure to Christians or Christianity or, or different things and try to convince them that, you know, Christians aren't just a bunch of goofballs. I mean, you know, there's different things. Anyway, so in 15.2 is the similar story. Um, they begin to grumble. See, the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near and they were listening to him. And here's the thing. It's not just social life. It's the fact that it opens the door for ministry. And the, and he would not have kept uh, pursuing such things if there wasn't response, if there wasn't positive volition, if it wasn't bearing fruit. You know, if after, you know, one or two times and, and there's no nobody's getting saved and, and Matthew decides not to be a disciple, you know, all these other things are just not not turning out. Everything Jesus does, he's doing in the will of the Father. And so he's going to these tax collectors homes. He's going to these sinners homes. He's he's got prostitutes washing his feet. Um, and so forth. And, and, but because there's positive response, because believers are, uh, unbelievers are getting saved and believers are, are, uh, are learning the Word of God. I think in a lot of cases you have folks here who were saved, but they're not accepted in the, in the synagogues. 
You know, what tax collector would ever be accepted to observe Passover or to come to the synagogue or to partake of, a, of, a, of, a, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread or any kind of a thing? They're not welcomed in Bible class or Torah class, whatever you want to call it. They're not welcomed in synagogue study because they're considered outcasts. And now here's someone that will sit with them and, and open up a Bible and read with them and study. So they were coming near to him and listening to him. When the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so becomes the opportunity to teach the three parables there of Luke 15. And then, of course, our passage here, Luke 19, 7. Now, what's happening then when Zacchaeus, um, the grumbling. Now, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold. Now, he stopped. <clears throat> the the picture's not exactly clear here. Um, stopped what? Stopped walking? Are they, are they at his house yet? How, you know, I, I think they actually get to the house in verse 6. He heard and came down and received him gladly. Meaning, uh, received him, they walked home, they talked the whole way, they, um, um, you know, they start eating, uh, they start fellowshipping, things of that nature. And then whoever they is, uh, the, the Pharisees and the other crowds, had followed him to the house, uh, grumbling. Zacchaeus stopped. Some commentaries think that they aren't at the house yet and they stopped walking. But I think they're already at the house. But he stops the, the actual um, proceedings. Uh, either whether it was teaching or fellowship or whatever was taking place, he just gets the whole room's attention and stops all of the, he would have stopped the servants from their serving. He would have stopped all of the, the, the speaking from happening. And it says, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Why does this have to happen now? Why does this statement have to come now? So point six. Zacchaeus, what he's doing here, Zacchaeus makes a public display of repentance. It is a public display of repentance. However, let's be clear, because legalists love to mess with this. This is not for salvation. He's not going to earn eternal life by giving away half his stuff. Okay? And it's really not related at all to the rich young ruler who Jesus said, give away all your stuff. Okay? It has nothing to do with trying to earn eternal life or trying to earn the kingdom. It is a display of repentance, and it's actually a fulfillment, it's obedience to what John the Baptist had been ministering and teaching on some three years prior. It's an anticipation of the coming kingdom. And we're going to notice, look at the similarities here. Half my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and it's a safe bet based on his career that, yes, he has. Okay? His business is, is to, he's, he's a shakedown artist, all right? It's, 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 he's raising the taxes, and he's going to do so uh, as he can in whatever source he can. And uh, he's going to have minions under him doing the same thing. And uh, whatever it takes for him to pay the tribute money to Rome is what he's doing so that Jericho uh, is, is on the books each year as, as having paid their, uh, their tribute. Now, let's look back to chapter 3. And recognize, you know, this is a ministry that took place not far from Jericho. 
the uh, the River Jordan there. Jericho is at the River Jordan, where uh, nearby where the River Jordan empties into the or flows into the uh, river. Doesn't really empty, but a river flows into uh, a body of water like the Dead Sea. And um, so the ministry of John the Baptist would have been nearby. The stories being told would have spread. In fact, Jesus himself would have been nearby, but uh, Shorty Zacchaeus never had a chance to see him in those early years. Now he has a chance to see him here as he passes through town. It's the only record of Jesus passing through Jericho in the span of his ministry. So, um, notice when John starts ministering here, He began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. Well, where are those crowds coming from? Many of those crowds were coming from Jerusalem, but many of those crowds were coming from Jericho. And they were coming from Jerusalem through Jericho to get down here to the River Jordan. So uh, the crowds were going out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you are coming to hear the herald announce the arrival of the king, then your life better match your, uh, your verbal testimony. And do not begin to say for yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. Don't even start claiming your racial heritage as counting for anything. <clears throat> and yet it's kind of interesting. For God is able, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. See, the, the truth is you have to be saved. You're a child of Abraham, you know, uh, racially, of course, as Jews, but you're a child of Abraham spiritually by faith in Christ. And uh, he's calling these, uh, these folks here a brood of vipers. In other words, they're uh, satanic offspring. They're of their father, the devil. He'll get more blunt with it. And Jesus will get more blunt with it in John 8. But it's the same concept. But isn't this interesting here in the same, uh, this terminology, um, children of Abraham or Abraham our father, uh, Jesus testified regarding to Zacchaeus, what? That he is a son of Abraham. He, he didn't, there was no question. That Zacchaeus wasn't a brood of vipers. Zacchaeus was a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus was re- responding to the instructions Jesus was giving him. Uh, they were having fellowship in Zacchaeus' home. And uh, Zacchaeus is starting to put together the present message of Jesus going to the Jerusalem and the previous message of, of John the Baptist, hey, the kingdom is at hand. Okay? And so he's going to start bearing fruit here. He's going to start bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. And specifically, how is that going to be played out? What else does it say? Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's going to be a judgment before the millennial kingdom begins. There's going to be a purging of, of Israel. The rebels are going to be purged, we're told, in Ezekiel chapter 20. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. Uh, Boy, the tribulation is going to be horrible for the Jewish people. Just surviving is going to require uh, sacrificial love and giving and, and blessing of one another and all the rest. It's going to be testimony to how they love Jesus Christ by virtue of what they've done to the least of these. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. Now, this is key because this is, this is what's motivating Zacchaeus 
back in chapter 19. Some tax collectors, some Teloni. Now, Zacchaeus is not in this group. He's an Archetelones. But these are the Teloni that work for Zacchaeus. And they come to him to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. In other words, don't line your pockets. Don't, uh, don't pad the books. Don't, uh, you know, don't receive the, don't get rich off of the kickbacks. And, uh, and so forth. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely. Be content with your wages. Uh, soldiers throughout the history of the world always can, uh, can pad their income by means of plunder or extortion or, or violent uh, means and so forth. And um, although the Romans typically were more disciplined about it than others, uh, still, even among the Romans, there was uh, there would be um, plunder. There would be other sources of revenue uh, that a soldier could um, a soldier could uh, take advantage of. All right, I find that interesting too. When when we um, went into Kuwait City. Uh, I mean, it was very clear uh, that we, there was, uh, I mean, we had briefings. We had just, it was laid out there that, you know, we are not conquering. We are not plundering. We are not looting. We are not stealing. You know, that we are professional American soldiers and we are actually pretty unique in the history of, of uh, civilization in, in a whole lot of ways. But I'll, I'll never forget some of those, some of those uh, briefings and, in fact, how, uh, any plunder would be prosecuted and how we, in fact, as an MP unit, we were to uh, be involved in searching for, for booty and plunder and things that other soldiers might be doing and, uh, and to put an end to it when it was not going to be tolerated. And I thought that was interesting. Um, I mean, I thought it was good. Not, I mean, it was, I, I didn't have any issue with uh, the no plunder <laughs> policy. All right. And I think there's a principle here. Let's get back now to... And so, as the Baptist is preaching this repentance, this bare fruit in keeping with repentance, he's not saying, do this in order to be saved. He's saying, you are saved. Do this in order to be pleasing to your coming king, in order that your life is compatible with your profession of faith so that you will indeed, in fact, enter into the kingdom as the uh, the king is, uh, is presented. And so... Uh, I think it is a principle of Scripture, as you see on the screen. Eschatology motivates peripatology. Eschatology motivates peripatology. In other words, uh, the future motivates the present. If you have an appreciation for the plan of God and what's coming up and how imminently we can be standing before the judgment seat of Christ, then uh, it is a motivation to godliness. Second Peter three. Second Peter three. And this is why I think it's sad that uh, liberal Christianity has uh, basically abandoned eschatology. They don't teach it. It's not important to them. They, they, um, as far as they're concerned, it's it's not really. 
accurate anyway. They have such a flawed view of the Bible that God can't really predict the future. And God hasn't predicted the future. Revelation was, you know, the preterist view that was all over with in 70 A.D. Uh, the Bible doesn't really tell us anything about the future. Uh, the Bible is really just kind of a moral textbook, you know, kind of a moral uh, you, you can get motivation from it. You can become a better person. And as long as you're a nice guy, uh, follow the golden rule, be a good Christian. And that's, that's pretty much all you need to get out of the Bible. The study of eschatology is, is useless. In fact, it's not even sensical to, to liberal Christianity. And that's unfortunate because while they sacrifice their eschatology just to kind of fall back in a retreat to morality, um, they've actually shot themselves in the foot because eschatology is one of the most powerful influences that will motivate godliness. That motivates how we walk, parapetology. And so as it says in Second Peter 3, of course, in the context of the heavens and earth being destroyed and in this, uh, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Eschatology motivates uh, holy conduct and godliness. The recognition that, yes, judgment day is coming. Yes, we are accountable. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Not only are we oriented to eschatology, but we are actively participating in the activity that is leading towards the fulfillment of these things. You know, if you truly are anticipating the rapture, uh, then you can look for it daily. You can hope for it daily, but you can also uh, and, uh, accelerate things, speaking in human terms, but speaking in biblical terms here. Hastening, looking for and hastening. The coming day. Well, how can we hasten it? Yeah, we can evangelize. That's right. Yeah, this, this bride is not yet complete. And uh, when will the bride be complete? Well, when the last church age believer gets saved. So uh, do you want to hasten that? Start giving the gospel. All right. Now, of course, if you want to be a, a, a nitpicker, you can say, well, it's going to happen in its due time, on its due season. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you on that, too. Okay. Uh, from God's perspective, it's not going to come one day sooner. It's not going to come one day later. It's going to come when sovereignty is determined it's going to come. From God's perspective. From our perspective, the Bible says looking for and hastening. Okay. So we can, in our mindset, uh, hurry things up. We can be in a hurried state from our attitudinal approach. All right. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, eschatology motivates parapetology. Are we looking for this new heavens and new earth? Well, what about it? That's, a, that's an existence in a realm of creation in which righteousness dwells. So our life today should be a righteous life. So therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, um, don't sweat it. Just be a slug. Wing it. Is that what it says? No. How many believers are just winging it? Being spiritual slugs. It says, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. The, the world to come is going to be righteous. So when he comes to take us out of this world, we want to be 
spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. In other words, each day that God's patience delays the trumpet, um, we have an opportunity to, to proclaim the gospel. All right. Anyway, this takes you down through the end and the grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But I would just highlight for you when it talks about this, when it talks about being eschatologically oriented, it says that, uh, you know, this is what this is the essence of Pauline theology is, a, is an imminent eschatology. And uh, it says uh, Paul in all his letters, speaking in them um, these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures. If you haven't already figured that out, that verse right there just uh, authorizes all the Pauline correspondence as scriptures. The rest of scriptures. Everything Paul wrote here is considered scripture, according to the Apostle Peter, according to scripture itself. Uh, the untaught and the unstable, what do they distort? They distort eschatology. They distort where we are and where we're going and what's coming up next. So you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. In other words, you don't fall for a faulty eschatology and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, assuming, of course, you have an accurate eschatology. All right, eschatology motivates peripatology. I think this is what's happening here with Zacchaeus. These, uh, from three years ago, he's been chewing on this. And these other tax collectors reported to him what it was that the herald was talking about, what it was the herald was saying, what it was that, uh, that uh, the Messiah was saying. And now the Messiah is coming through his town, sees him up in the tree, calls him out by name. Today I must be in your house. So he's going to make application. Not because he's not trying to earn his salvation, but he's trying to... Um, prepare he's preparing himself for entrance into the kingdom last point jesus acknowledges zacchaeus's faith jesus acknowledges zacchaeus's faith and testifies to his ongoing mission verses 9 and 10 i think this is important too Verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And you wonder, who in Zacchaeus' house didn't know the Lord like Zacchaeus did? And you wonder, what fruit is going to be born when they see the head of the house giving away half his possessions. They see the head of the house testifying to the king. They see the head of the house bearing fruit. You know, we know it wasn't just the Philippian jailer who got saved that day. We know it was his whole household that had the opportunity because of the example that was set. I think it's interesting, too. <coughs> the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Um, this is... Uh, more than just simply taking an unbeliever and bringing him to the status of eternal life. Remember the parable of the of the, the prodigal son? Uh, you had a lost coin, you had a lost sheep, you had a lost son, all three stories in the same chapter. 
And the son was still a son. He was a son at the start of the story. And he was a son that had been found at the end of the story, you understand. And so seeking and saving that which was lost can reference an unbeliever receiving eternal life or a carnal believer um, repenting, coming to the point of seriousness about his spiritual walk. And I find this to be an excellent testimony as to how our Savior and, and um, Stephen Cook, when he, when he spoke here in the conference week on that Friday night, he spoke about the focus that Jesus had in remaining obedient to the Father's plan on the night in which he was betrayed. And he's washing the disciples' feet. He's focused on his mission, and he's not, he's not abandoning. He's not, he's not um, you know, freaking out the night before he's going to the cross. And he's not, um, but he's remained focused. And here's Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, and there's, there's still ministry here on the way. There's still ministry. There's going to be ministry in Bethany. There's going to be ministry in the upper room. There's going to be ministry in the garden. There's going to be ministry uh, at the trial. There's going to be ministry on the cross. There's going to be a thief on a, on a cross next to him. Okay? There's ministry, 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 and Jesus is, is faithful each of these steps of the way. And so... Uh, kind of an interesting uh, testimony here that's being offered in these uh, in these verses. All right. <clears throat> We're ready then. That takes us to verses 11 and following. The parable of the minus or the minus. I've heard it pronounced two different ways. Um, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. So you understand the context has not shifted. The context remains. Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, in fact, on his way there, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. I mean, that was Zacchaeus's supposition. Zacchaeus had not been in the Perean region, in the Galilean region, in all these other regions when Jesus said... Um, when uh, Jesus started teaching mystery, when Jesus started teaching the kingdom delayed, they were still under the assumption that the kingdom was at hand. That's what the baptizer said. And uh, so they're under a false supposition. So he has to tell them a message. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. <laughs> nope, kingdom's not going to be imminent. He said, I'm going up to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. He told his disciples he was going to die. He was going to be raised again on the third day. The kingdom is not immediate. And here he's starting to give indication that he's actually going to go away. He's going to depart for an unstated period of time to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And so there's a message here. And this message, this parable, is going to uh, clear up a, uh, an inaccurate supposition. We're also going to see some things here, too. <clears throat> the, uh, he calls ten of his slaves. Ten of his slaves. Now, these aren't all of his slaves. We don't know how many he has. But however many he has, ten of them get called for uh, a work assignment. And he gave them ten minus or minas. I guess I'll stick with mina. In the Greek, it's mu, iota, nu, alpha. We use a short I for the iota. 
gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens, now this is a different target group here. These aren't his slaves or even ten of his slaves. These are now his citizens hated him. In other words, there's going to be a group of people that are citizens of his kingdom um, related to him, racially related to him, citizens. Uh, but And they're going to be working against his slaves. And they send a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. In other words, they're going to reject his lordship. And so when he returned, after receiving the kingdom, so much for their delegation, <laughs> all right, the, the Jewish opposition to the Messiahship of Jesus Christ is not going to change the Father's mind. Jesus is the Christ. He will reign on the, on the throne of David. He ordered that the slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. And um, it's kind of interesting, too, not the profit they had made, but the business they had done. And the first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. Well, there's an abundant uh, thousand percent uh, uh, investment improvement there. He said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. <laughs> in other words, he did no business at all. He did zero business. He was provided the same resources, but did zero business with it. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down. You reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know or did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. And if you're not going to do business with it, at least uh, bank with it so that there will be a return of something. You know, he's been gone for 2,000 years. What does Amina, you know, get you after 2,000 years? Um, and they said to him, Master. Oh, then he said to the bystanders. So we've got slaves. We've got uh, citizens. We've got bystanders. Take the Mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten. And they said to him, Master, he has ten Minas already. You know, that, that doesn't fly too well in the socialist mindset. of uh, <laughs> yeah. In fact, they should be taken away from the guy who has Ted. He's got too much. It's not fair. <clears throat> I tell you, to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. How can he not have and yet what he does have? Okay. There's several things being said in that one verse, and we're going to have to be cautious with it and just slowly work our way through, verse by verse, point by point. I'm, we have short time and kind of running out of gas anyway, but we'll come back to this. These enemies of mine, here's the last character of the drama, enemies. All right. So we've got a nobleman, we've got slaves, we've got citizens, we have bystanders, and now we have enemies. And all of the characters in this drama, uh, we're going to want to take some time to, uh, to understand. And I think the, the, probably the simplest thing to do is to, um, and we'll do this next week, is to prove that this is not the same as the parable that's told in Matthew 25. Okay? There's a parable of the talents in Matthew 25. 
uh, and a lot of commentaries try to blend the two or say they overlap. A lot of commentaries try to equate uh, the, the two chapters, and they're not. They're not. They've got a different subject. There, there are similarities uh, because there's a loser who has his, his talent taken away. But there are too many differences. They are different. And uh, I'll even give you a preview of what point one is going to be next week. This parable is remarkably similar to the parable of the talents. And that's going to be episode 13 in the final week at Jerusalem uh, ministry. Um, but there are critically different uh, points that are being made in Matthew 25. Okay, And I'll just let you chew on it between now and then. But here you got ten slaves being given ten minas, one apiece. Every slave has an equal gift. Every slave has an equal resource, the single mina. Over there in Matthew um, chapter 25, you have three slaves, not ten. You have three, and one of them is given five, and one of them is given two, and one of them is given one. They're given different amounts, and we're told they're given those amounts according to their ability. Why did the five guy get five? Why did the two guy get two? Why did the one guy get one? All right. There's a different principle being taught in that parable. There's a different principle being taught in this parable. We want to understand that there are different abilities in giftedness in what God assigns for believers to achieve, but there is also equality in terms of what we are provided in our salvation, in our grace package, in our in our standing before the Lord. And so in, uh, if you want to look at it in the one way, we all receive a single mina. We all have equal opportunity. We all have equal assets in our church age service. Look at it in the other perspective. We have different provision according to ability. Five, two, and one. All right? And they are different principles being taught there. And we'll have to understand each one of them in turn. So we'll, tickle, we'll tackle this one next week. The other one's going to wait because it's still uh, three more episodes here in the Perean ministry. And then 13 episodes in the final week at Jerusalem. So uh, we'll have that coming up. Father, thank you for your truth, for your faithfulness, for uh, sustaining my voice at least 55 minutes, if not the full hour. We uh, thank you for... Uh, all of your grace and all of your glory. I pray that the word of God will be alive and powerful. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.